This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. What a bird brain. That insult designates a stupid or foolish person, one subject to flightiness or scattered thinking. But birds come in all sizes, and so do their brains. And a recent study shows that brain size matters in terms of a bird's resilience to the environmental pressures exerted by rising temperatures of our changing climate. A study carried out by ecologists at Washington University in St. Louis builds on the fact that many North American migratory birds are shrinking in size as temperatures have warmed over the past 40 years. But those with very big brains relative to their body size did not shrink as much as smaller-brained birds. This study has attracted scientific and popular attention, as it is the first to identify a direct link between cognition and animal response to human-made climate change. Two of the authors of that study are here today, Justin Baldwin and Carlos Botero. They are ecologists and evolutionary biologists at Washington University in St. Louis. Justin and Carlos, welcome. Before we discuss the specifics of your study, I'd like to envision where each of you are when you carried out this research. Justin, can you start us off by telling us your current research setting and and where you are now? Sure. I'm a PhD candidate in the lab of Carlos Botero at Washington University in St. Louis. Great. And Carlos, what is your role there? Uh, so I'm the I'm the PI, the pri- the principal investigator at the lab in in biology in Washington University. Okay, great. Um, I guess that we should start out at a place in which I'm sure that I understand the basics of your study. I'm wondering why does brain size matter for birds, and what does brain size relative to body size? How does that affect their behavior or their capacity to reproduce or flourish? Uh, Maybe, Justin, you could start us out with that. Sure. So across all 10,000 or so species of birds, there are a couple very interesting correlations that we see with bird lifestyles and traits and their brain size relative to their body size. So we see, for example, that birds with high relative brain sizes are the ones that live longer, survive better in nature, live in complex social groups, Um, They have better memory skills. Uh, They invest more time and energy into rearing their babies. Um, And so they live in in harsh and complex and unpredictable environments. So we thought that perhaps this trait of having a high relative brain size might also predict or shed some light on how they've been dealing with climate change. And I was wondering, um, what is the earlier work that provided the foundation for your understanding of the effects of warming temperatures on birds in general. Yeah, there's that. That is definitely the case for most of the things that we do here at the Botero Lab. Um, this particular case, we are building upon a huge data set um, that was that was built by by Weeks and others, um, in which they followed uh, collisions of birds in buildings in Chicago for several decades, and um, having having documented the changes in body size among primarily passerines, that's the songbirds, um, the, the birds that typically you think about when you think about a bird, um, they, they were able to, to provide us with the impetus for this study because they were able to show that body sizes have generally been decreasing in all of the species that they looked at over the last few decades. 
So you had access to that information and, and that's what you sort of took it, took it a step further, so to speak. Is that right? Yes. So in this particular case, the prior study had focused on how body size is changing as a consequence of temperature changes throughout the world. And what we realized was that not every species in that data set was changing at the same rate. And that's where we put two and two together with, with Justin and with Joan Garcia Porta, another member of this team. Um, and we realized that perhaps what we could do was ask whether the reasons why we were seeing differences in, that, in those responses had something to do with their relative brain size or their behavioral flexibility. Fantastic. You know, one of the things I really loved about your study was the way that 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 you and your colleagues mustered evidence from these multiple disciplines, multiple tools, different approaches um, to get the answer to your questions, sort of like gathering all the different pieces of a, of a jigsaw puzzle. And I'm wondering how you went about sort of pulling together that team and that expertise that you needed in order to answer your questions. And I'm, I'm not sure whether it was Carlos or Justin who might know more about this, but but I'd like to know how you went about sort of pulling together that group. The, the Botero Lab is typically, it's typically set up for, for integrating information from very disparate fields. So that is kind of like our bread and butter. We are all quantitative biologists. Justin is an exceptional quantitative biologist. He knows a lot about data analysis and extracting from big data sets that are available. Joanne also is a, an incredible member of our team that has that was the person that actually measured the brain sizes and knows a lot about genetics. So it, each one of us has their, our, our own different uh, tools and techniques, and we all constantly interact with each other to make our projects better, enrich them, and, and try to, as you say, pull in from very different disciplines to answer the particular question we're excited about. Justin, I would I was wondering if you could sum up the take-home messages from this paper. I guess perhaps uh, one of the striking things that was a kind of a surprise to us was to see that even small differences in relative brain size seem to have a substantial and possibly large effect on ecological dynamics. So uh, kind of traditionally, a lot of the studies on cognition and evolution in birds kind of make comparisons between families of birds that have really huge brain sizes relative to their body sizes, stuff like tropical parrots or ravens. And they compare them to families uh, that have very tiny relative brain sizes, such as pheasants or doves or chickens. And so those across all bird species that currently have brain size estimates, only about about 2,000 out of the 10,000, um, we see actually a five-fold span of relative brain size. And wow. So, yeah. Uh, um, but in this study, with the species that Weeks et al. Um, kind of showed this amazing phenomenon of body size shrinkage of, uh, those species only show about a two-fold difference in relative brain size. So even though there is a kind of a small range of relative brain sizes, we were pretty surprised to find that um, relative brain size still had an effect on reducing the responsiveness to the changes in the environment. Thank you. That was that that sums it up. I think really well. You know, as scientists, I know that we have to be careful about how our scientific results are interpreted. And one thing that was said about your study is that. Um, this, your results don't mean that climate change is, is not affecting brainy birds or that brainy birds are going to do just fine. But what your findings suggest is that climate change can have a stronger effect on less brainy birds. And I'm wondering whether, you know, this, this article has attracted a lot of attention. And I'm wondering if you have to have had to be careful about 
making sure that people understand the import of the results of this study, not to sort of give an excuse and a go ahead and do anything because brainy birds are going to be just fine. I'm wondering how you've handled uh, the interpretation of your results by others, by other stakeholders. Of course. So the the first thing is to say that, as you say, it's very important for us to make sure that our our findings are placed in the proper context. And one of the ways that we tried to get ahead of that possibility was by making sure that when we first let the press know about the paper, that we explicitly stated those things that you say. So we were able to to kind of get ahead of this issue. Um, And fortunately, we haven't had so far any major confusion about this. (laughs) Great. It is, it is, it is very important to kind of like make sure that in the way that we talk about a study, that we don't overstate our findings, that we don't kind of like leave enough vagueness in the way that we say so that people can make interpretations that are wrong. So what we tried to do was from the very beginning, kind of like state exactly what you said. Uh, this doesn't mean that that these birds are not being affected or they're going to be fine. And it has worked so far. I have, I have to say that at least in my impression, what do you think, Justin? I completely agree. All the interactions that I've had with the uh, journalists from lots of different backgrounds, either student journalists or, or uh, you know, professionals, they've been really, um, gr- they just ask great questions, have really been able to get at the nuance and, and um, you know, really say, understand that we're not writing a blank check for, uh, for conservationists to do what, what they want with, with perceived relative uh, species with large range sizes. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I was one, I'm just sort of picturing the three of you sitting down in your lab and saying, "Okay, what are our talking points?" You know, when when we talk to somebody who's who might misinterpret this, these are the things that we said. Did you actually sort of sit down and plan that out, or were you sort of of a mind together that you were able to handle this potential, you know, sort of putting off of misinterpretation? Nalini, you're exactly exactly right on. <laughs> we had a meeting. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, I have to say, this is not my first rodeo. So I, I kind of like have a sense that there are certain things that you want to get ahead of and make sure that that you don't leave too much uh, room for speculation in the things that are like that really, really matter. So in this particular case, we had that exact meeting that you're talking about in <laughs> the, the press release. And we we came up with those with with those specific things. Great. I, I'm, I'm delighted. And I really commend you for sort of being proactive in terms of uh, not allowing the media to misinterpret the good work that you've done. But, you know, this this topic is so uh, so timely and so essential. I read a disturbing statistic that relates to your work of um, that three billion birds, one out of three, have already been lost in North America since the 1970s. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if one or the other of you could talk about how your results relate to to conservation or to setting up protected sites or to earmarking particular groups of birds that might need extra protection against the oncoming onslaught of, of, of climate change and global warming. Sure. So um, I guess I, I would maybe want to first preface any comments by saying, uh, you know, I really am hesitant to kind of make any prescriptive uh, advice for, for conservationists and people doing the really hard work of protecting birds um, and protecting landscapes. So um, I do, however, think, though, that our study, you know, it adds to this growing body of knowledge that describes how birds have been responding to man-made climate change, right? I mean, like we've seen that for the last 20 years, 
people have known that wildlife populations have been responding to climate change. And a lot of the more recent research has documented novel, very surprising ways of how birds have been responding to climate change, right? They've been moving, they've been breeding earlier, migrating earlier, and again, most, most strikingly kind of changing even their body sizes. And so as we understand, as we, as we, as conservationists are going to face challenging decisions in the future, and often we'll have to extrapolate and predict how target species under management plans are going to respond to future changes in the climate, we can kind of look towards the past and see how species have responded to past but recent climate change as well. And as if we hopefully understand the factors that explain some of the variation of the responses to changes in the past, then hopefully that can help guide and inform choices in the future. Very well said. I'm wondering about um, what efforts your team has made to make the data that you've collected and analyzed accessible to other scientists. All of the papers that my lab puts out, we are committed to this open data policy in which both the, the data that we use, and particularly if we're collecting new data, but even if it's if it we're just like reanalyzing old data, we, we make it accessible with the papers themselves. Uh, we typically use data repositories like Dryad, which is a special place where scientists go and deposit their data sets with some special metadata that helps other people understand what the data are about. Um, and we um, also make sure that in the supplements of our paper, we explain exactly what are the steps involved in doing what we did. We explain why we took them, and we that, that also helps other people that come after us that may decide that they could apply similar techniques or similar tools. They, it, it also helps kind of like streamline the process so that they already know how we did what we did. Fantastic. I, I just love hearing this, and I love hearing about really how so much of, of, of current ecological work, and I presume other areas of science as well, has turned into this sort of very generalized collaborative effort rather than competition or holding your data tight. Certainly you have to do that before you publish, but after you publish your work, after you've shared your results, to be able to have other scientists gain easy access to the data and metadata, I think really will push science forward much more rapidly. Um, I wanted to go back to one more, one more question that relates to your paper. You know, I'm guessing that the large amount of positive attention that your paper has already attracted relates to the fact that this is really the first time that scientists have been able to find a direct link between cognition and and responses to climate change. And I'm wondering what might be the ripple effects of your results to other organisms. I mean, you looked at birds and bird brains, but how generalizable might this be? Or might other scientists explore this might be? Uh, to other to other taxonomic groups, I guess first I would I would be I would want to caution kind of any any speculation that I would want to do to other groups uh, kind of on the grounds that um, you know, within birds these links between relative brain size and other interesting behavioral patterns uh, is seems well established for now, but you know relative brain size is a very coarse measurement um, of. Of, of the pro, as a proxy variable for behavioral flexibility. Um, and I think in other groups of animals, it might be a little more complicated. Um, but I do think overall, I, you know, there are lots of interesting long-term data sets and you know, systems where people have really looked at how life on earth has been responding to man-made climate change. And I think you know, there are going to be other variables that can approximate this capacity for behavioral flexibility that might not be relative brain size for other species, 
but could at least shed some light on some aspects of their behavior as well. And I like that you're being careful about, you know, extrapolating what this means to other animal groups. But, um, but I, I think that it's, it's fascinating to think about how this relates to other taxon as well. So I, I think that, that Justin's answer is, is right on in terms of the techniques that, that would be needed to follow up the study on other groups. But in general, I have to say that the, that the general idea of what our study captures should be applicable to any organism. And what I mean by that is that we expect that in general, behavioral flexibility should help any kind of organism, be it birds, mammals, uh, any kind of vertebrate. Um, it should, in, in theory, should help them deal uh, with or, or cope with the consequences of the environmental consequences of climate change much better than organisms that don't have that capacity. The problem that, that, that Justin has stated is how we actually test for it because we unfortunately do not have the knowledge or the capacity to measure behavioral flexibility in hundreds of species. Um, and simple proxies like relative brain size, as he mentions, do not really apply very well to groups other than birds. I see. Okay. Well, that, that makes it very clear. Um, uh, sort of pivoting a little bit about uh, about your study, you know, increasingly, I know that every study that's supported by the National Science Foundation, which which funded your study, uh, the researchers who carry out that that intellectual merit research, the research itself, has to also think about how their research impacts society. And I know that we're required to write out what are called broader impact statements. And I'm wondering what your broader impacts were, both that you proposed and that you were able to implement. How did you explain the ways in which society might be impacted by your work? The, the grant that funded this specific study was basically um, geared towards creating more data that people could use to answer a lot of different questions. And we just happened to answer this one with that new data set. Um, so part of the benefits that we set for that specific funding proposal was that we would be able to answer questions like this one. Uh, we were also able to um, use some of the findings that we had, and not just in this, but other papers that also came out of this the same work, um, uh, to build a series of lessons plan, lesson plans for kids in middle schools, the sixth to eighth grade. Um, and we were able to partner with Washington University's Institute for School Partnerships um, to create uh, age-appropriate and, and uh, lessons that would follow the specific curriculum of, of each of the great grades that we were targeting. Um, we were able to link with, with teachers in school districts, primarily under, underserved districts from highly, highly minority institutions, highly represented minority institutions, we were using um, all these partnerships that the university has to make sure that we could reach more kids. We, so far, we've known that the lessons that we created were um, have reached at least 7,500 different students. We also had some activities planned for uh, going out and talking to the public and educating them about evolution and about ecology and about climate change uh, in the Ferguson farm, farmers market. But unfortunately, the pandemic like made that oh, right of course i was just going to say there's there's a each one of the studies as you say has a range of different activities in which try in which we try to multiply the reach of our findings and make sure that they don't just come like go and die in like some crusty academic journal as we are discovering these new things that we share those things with the public that we train the younger generation and that we use it to to the greatest of the extent that we can uh to make sure that it improves the society 
Fantastic. I love hearing about all the different ways that you've you've really connected your research with with public groups that may not have access to it otherwise. They might not pick up the journal ecology or plant ecology, uh, but that you provided this education right, right, right in the schools really is, is a fantastic thing. Justin, on your website, I saw that you said that you were captured by biology and natural history during your undergraduate studies at Hampshire College while doing bird-related field jobs and studying bat-plant interactions with faculty there. And for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who might want to do the kinds of work you're doing, I was wondering if you have any advice or guidelines for them. Absolutely. Um, I guess it depends on how much time I have. (laughs) But uh, let me, I would just say that I found my way into academic research after spending time in the field and uh, kind of trying to witness firsthand biological diversity. If I have any advice to give, I would recommend that you know students try to get uh, any opportunity or jump on any opportunity they can get to go to wild places, to go work with people who uh, really know and are uh, stuff about wild animals um, and find out what they are most passionate about because I, I believe that there's nothing like to, the best way to find out what you what, what you really want to work on is, is by by trying it by trial and error because there's there's nothing like the the magic of biodiversity when you can see it firsthand I mean it just sparks so many questions it's part of it it really illustrates the coolest story of life on earth which is evolution. <laughs> I love that. It was beautiful, Justin. I love that. Um, and Carlos, your laboratory uses tools from ecology and evolutionary biology to explore how life, and, and going from bacteria to humans, how life copes with and adapts to repeated environmental change. And I'm wondering, you know, these are all wonderful fields. I'm wondering what is next for you on your research dance card? Well, um, right now, one of the one of the directions that my lab is really exploring heavily is this idea of the of, of behavioral flexibility and cognition and how it could affect every aspect of life. We're teaming up with members of the radiology department at WashU to build even better data sets in which we're going to look at the functioning of avian brains and we're trying to do that at a, at a really large scale comparative. Um, in a comparative way, so like hundreds of different species. Uh, hopefully that will be done before I die. Um, <laughs> one of those things that it's going to take time. And in the meantime, I just enjoy, I just enjoy kind of like keeping my mind open to ideas that are exciting. One of the biggest directions in my, in my research and in my scientific work uh, to something that I heard in passing from a professor I had when I was a grad student. Um, Tom Seeley, one day we were talking about work and how you structure the way in which you you ask questions. And I remember him telling me that he was uh, always excited about having one of his passion projects being there for him and keeping him reinvigorated about life and about doing the work that he did. Um, he called that recreational science. And oh, I love that. That he had one recreational science project going on. And I remember thinking, wow, this is exactly why I got into, into this. And I want to do recreational science at least one time in my life. And I thought at the beginning it was just going to be one project. And it turns out that currently all the, all the <laughs> have gone out of a wow. science project. So I, I keep going in different directions, try to keep like a, a general 
topic that I'm that I'm I feel like I'm I have an expertise on, but in general, I'm open to a lot of different things. That is a great answer. Wonderful. I often think about um, as, as a biologist, I think about my work as plurk. It's partly play. And it's partly work. You know, there's definitely work elements with the statistics for me are the work part and the play is going out in the field. So, so but I really like the term recreational re- uh, research. I think that's fantastic. Um, and Justin, um, you're, you're just getting your dissertation now, but you're already an expert in multiple ways of knowing in avian ecology and statistical modeling and data-driven natural history. I'm wondering um, what area do you foresee you'll be working on next? Yeah, I guess I wanted to echo one of the sentiments that uh, Carlos expressed early on, on in, in the last answer, which is just that, that in, sure, in many ways, um, the brains are, are black boxes, uh, but uh, we uh, currently have a couple grants out to really try to add more uh, data coverage, especially, especially from um, kind of like poorly known tropical species. Hopefully, if um, we can kind of get lucky with the next couple funding opportunities, we might be able to go collaborate with some more uh, with some people who have access to amazing collections of birds that are found in the tropics. So fingers crossed. Yeah, that sounds like an extremely exciting prospect. Well, Justin and Carlos, thank you so much for sharing aspects of this really fascinating and important piece of scientific research. We wish you both the best for your research, your work, and your recreational research in the future. Thanks again. Thank you, Nalini. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Nalini. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tiso. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.